All right, well, this morning, open your Bibles to, let's see, Isaiah chapter 19. We are back in our study of Isaiah. We've been gone for a few months. So now we're going to get back into it. But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll see what's going on. Lord God, once again, we uh, just thank you again, as April mentioned, for your holiness. And as John prayed, we do not begin to understand or grasp how holy you are and how sinful we are. But yet in your great love for us, you reach down and put your holiness upon us because of what your son Jesus has done for us. And we thank you so much for that. And I pray even as we study the prophet Isaiah that we would see your love way back long ago calling out to people who do not yet know you. And I pray this morning, if there's anybody in here, Lord, who does not yet know you, that they would see your love pronounced through the prophet Isaiah and see that it is also for them. And so we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Isaiah 19. So before we go there, let me give you a little, kind of set the stage again. As I mentioned, we've been gone for for quite some time, but I want to give you an idea of what's going on at the time of prophet Isaiah writing, particularly verse 19. So God is once again demonstrating to the people of Judah, so he's writing to Judah or Israel, that their sense of security is misplaced. You know, by seeking alliances with the nations around them. If you remember what's going on, the Assyrian nation is coming from the north by decree of God to judge Judah for their disobedience to God and their continual disobedience. And so Isaiah has already shown Judah that the future demise of the other nations around them that they might think of trusting and helping them in alliance to fight the Assyrians. So a few chapters ago, we talked about Babylon and Moab and Philistia. And then the last chapter was Ethiopia. And again, Isaiah was showing them by God's revelation that, hey, these nations around you that you guys think are so strong and are going to help you, eventually they're going to be judged too, and you guys need to turn to me. And so how does he get this? Now, he, Well, now he's going to deal with a different nation around them, the nation to the south of Judah, which is Egypt. And Egypt is a nation that is also fighting against Assyria. And so Judah's thinking, hey, if we line up with Egypt, then maybe we'll be saved. And so Isaiah's message to them is, hey, you cannot trust Egypt either because they're going to be humbled as well, just like those other nations around you. A matter of fact, just let me give you a brief summary. If you look in verse 22 of this chapter, and we're going to study this more in depth, but I just want to show you something real quick. In verse 22 of Isaiah 19, Isaiah says this, The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing So they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. So he's telling them, you know what? The Lord's going to strike Egypt too, but he's going to strike them for their good because they're going to be healed, and they're going to return to the Lord. So in doing this, he's going to show Israel again that they should not look to Egypt for security, but to God alone, and that they too, Israel, must humble themselves and surrender to God. Now, this plan in both warning Israel and striking Egypt is also going to be a witness for us today that we can learn from and we can be warned about 
putting our trust in things other than the Lord God Almighty. And we can also learn how God uses his heavy hand of discipline, you know, striking, as it says in verse 22, in drawing people to himself. And you may be thinking, well, how does striking somebody bring healing? I was thinking of my father. He had one of his, I think it was just one of his fingers. His pinky was kind of, it was bent. So he'd hold his finger straight and then I can't even do it. But this one was bent like that. And I remember as a young child asking my dad, hey, what's up with your finger, dad? Why is it, I probably didn't say it like that. I was probably a lot more respectful. I asked him what was wrong. He was like, oh, when I was in football, I, I broke my pinky. And he never got it fixed. He just lived with it that way. Because in order to fix that pinky, what would have to happen? They would have to break it. They would have to break his pinky again and reset it, and then it would be straight. So that's an example of being broken in order to be healed, or wounded in order to be healed. People today are just like my father's pinky, if you think about it. They need to be broken before they're healed. They need to be broken before they'll return to the Lord or begin to seek the Lord. But like my father, some people would rather live with a bent finger, so to speak, or a bent life, a broken life, than submit to God or submit to be broken or respond to God's judgment. And so let's look at the story this morning in Isaiah 19 and see what exactly God does to straighten up Egypt, how he wounds them and heals them at the same time. So we're going to walk through this. I'm going to read a few verses and talk about it, make a little few points of application, and then in the end, give us further points of application for each and every one of us in here this morning. So let's read a couple verses. Let's read, let's just read verse one. So the oracle concerning Egypt. So right away, Isaiah tells Judah, because Egypt's not hearing this. Again, this message is for Judah to not trust Egypt. So I'm writing my burden against Egypt, the nation that you guys are thinking of trusting. And he says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within him. So right away from the very beginning, we get this picture of God riding a cloud, which usually means God's coming in judgment. And God is sovereign over all of creation, which is why he's pictured as riding a cloud. And he's going to judge the nation Egypt. And so what does it say? It says that he's going to strike them with fear. Look at verse 1 again. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Fear is one way to humble people. On the negative side of fear, if you think about those who may be afraid, or all of us when we get afraid of something or fearful of something, that it cripples us, doesn't it? It cripples our decision-making. It can generate stress and anxiety and even anger, and ultimately it can leave you powerless because you sit there in a state of fear and you can't move and you worry about the possibility that something may happen. And you're so afraid that you sit there, and maybe even in the negative side, like I said, you don't even ask for help. You struggle within yourself and try to fix it. And so that's the negative side of fear. And so God is striking them with fear, not so that they stay there, right? He wants them to return to Him or come to Him. 
which is the positive side of fear. You see, the positive side of fear should drive you to seek help from the Lord or to seek help in general. The negative side cripples you and you stay there and you don't move. You can't make decisions. You're anxious and you're angry and you're upset and you worry about things that have yet to happen. But the positive side, again, drives you to seek help. And ultimately, it should drive us to seek help from the Lord. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that's a positive fear. And this is the fear that God is trying to drive into the nation of Egypt. And by warning, again, showing Judah, look at what's going to happen to them. They're not going to be able to help you. So the very first point here is that he will strike fear into Egypt. Let's look at the second one. Look at verses 2 and 3 now. He says, So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother, and each against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy, so that they resort to idols, and ghosts of the dead, and mediums, and spiritists. So, the second type of fear that God is going to, or the second type of striking or wounding that God is going to inflict on the Egyptians is eternal conflict. You see that when they're so upset, they're so afraid of what God is doing that they start fighting with each other. It's like a sports team, right? When they start losing, what happens? They start pointing fingers at one another. It's your fault. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Instead of owning up to the responsibility. And that's what we see in verses 2 and 3 with Egypt. And so much so that they are demoralized. They start to give up. On the other side, instead of Seeking after God, verse 3 tells us they start seeking demonic assistance. They're so afraid, they've been struck so hard that they don't know what to do. And so instead of turning to God, they call out to things that God has made or man-made things. They run to the gods of this world. It says in verse 3, look again, that they resort to idols and ghosts of the dead. They're even seeking wisdom from the dead to mediums who associate with the dead, and spiritists. All these things are forbidden by God, but they don't know what to do. They're just grasping at straws because they've been struck so hard. And so this is one of the things that God does to them. And again, instead of seeking after the Lord, they're seeking after things that are not from the Lord. And again, you might think of our own culture. It's no different. When tough times hit our culture, and maybe even some of you in here, you turn to the idols, we turn to modern day idols, right? And we might not have statues in our room that we're praying to or going to an opposite religious church of some sort, right? But we, ha- we all have self-made idols, and even in our culture we do, right? It might be mysticism or some other religious philosophy or even people that we deem as religious who aren't believers. We might turn to positive thinking. You know, if I just think about if I think positive thoughts, I can get myself out of this. Basically, anything turning to anything but the Lord Jesus is demonic assistance. And so this is what's happening with Egypt. Again, they're running around confused, confounded, demoralized, and grasping at anything but the Lord God. There's another way that we see him striking Egypt. Look at verse 4 now. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hands of a cruel master. 
and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. So God is going to strike the Egyptians with oppression sometime during their kingdom. Right? There's no specifics on when all this is going to happen. This is just a general statement, a figurative statement of how God inflicts fear or pain on Egypt so that they will turn to God. So he strikes them with depression. It could be maybe Assyria is going to come and rule them, or maybe he's going to send them a cruel king, right? It could be another country coming and oppressing them, and then they cry out to God. That's what happened to Israel all the time, right? When you look through Judges and First and Second Kings, all the time Israel would have a, maybe there would be people coming to attack them, and they would cry out to God, and God would deliver them. Or they would have an evil and cruel king, and then God would destroy that king and give them another king. This happened with Israel as well, and God is going to use that with Egypt. Praise God, this has not happened in our country. In our short 200 years of world history, we have not had that happen here in the United States, have we? Does that mean it could never happen? Does God have his hand on the United States so much so that we could never be overrun or oppressed? Or we could never have a cruel ruler? Again, praise God that that has yet to happen. But God would be well within his rights to allow our country to fall into the hands of an oppressive nation. Looking at the the way our culture is going, who's rejecting God and pushing God out. A culture of death that has no problem with killing the aged or the unborn. God, again, would be well within his rights to allow our country to fall. And not only that, maybe even give us a cruel and oppressive leader, regardless of what we might think of our current government or future government or possibility of future presidents. We don't have an oppressive leader. We haven't fallen to a cruel master. But in the meantime, we as believers are encouraged to do something. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and this is what I would urge each and every one of us to do, is this. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, he says, First of all, then I urge entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So instead of talking bad about the current administration or future administrations or any political party, we should be praying for them. That, Lord God, please speak to them. Help them, Lord God, so that we as believers might live quiet lives and they might not enact laws and rules that would forbid us from worshiping the Lord God. That's what we should be doing, praying for our leaders, from the civic leaders to the federal leaders and even world leaders as well. But God here again, going back to our text in verse 4, is saying, I am going to send oppressors to you because maybe then, Egypt, you will cry out to me. And again, I pray that God never does that with our country, that we as a country would see our need for God before it is too late. So there's another way that God is going to strike Egypt. Look at verses 5 through 8. He will strike them with famine. And so here's some very figurative language about the way that the Lord is going to strike Egypt. Let's read verses 5 through 8. It says this. The waters from the sea will dry up, and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. And streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and the rushes will rot away. 
the bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry and be driven away and be no more. And the fishermen will lament, and those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread the nets on the waters will pine away. You could see it's depicted that there's great famine so much so that things dry up and even the industries that are associated with the water are suffering. And God is using this again so that Israel, or excuse me, that Egypt will cry out to God and that Israel will see that you cannot run to Egypt for help because even they are going to need help and nobody is going to be left to help them. It's also, it shows us that, hey, weather patterns are beyond our control. We can't control the weather. As much as we have tried, and I was reading online about different ways that we have tried, there's something, I forgot, I think it's called cloud seeding, where they try to, you know, put something into the clouds so that they produce rain. But the cloud has to have a certain amount of moisture already in it for it to rain, and they're thinking, well, it was going to rain anyway, so you didn't really help it. We can't control the weather patterns. God is ultimately in control. Therefore, we must totally depend upon God even for our weather. Again, this is why the Lord is causing famine in Egypt, so that they cry out to God and seek after Him. Let's look at the next point in verses 9 through 10. God will also strike them with economic crisis. Look at what happens after this. He says, Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected. And the pillars of Egypt will be crushed and the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. Again, this is just a figurative way of just saying there's going to be an economic crisis so much so that you guys have to cry out to the Lord God. This again, and this is going to result in uncertainty and lack of trust in their leaders. Look at verses 11 through 15 now. It says this, The princes of Zoan are mere fools, and the advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisers has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has proposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion, and they have led Egypt astray in all that is done, or all that it does, and as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt, which is its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. Again, this is just a vivid depiction of how God is going to destroy their, their economy. And even their leaders won't know what to do. They don't know how to get them out of it. So much so that they're depicted as being drunken and staggering in their own vomit. Not very wise at all. Again, so they've exhausted their ideas. That's the other depiction that we get here, is that their leaders, they don't know what to do. The princes, the wise men, he's saying, they're they're not wise, they're foolish. He even calls them stupid in the things that they try to do. If you think about even our society, sometimes our leaders can be uncertain on how to fix our economy, so much so that they're fighting in Congress and in the Senate. They don't know how to fix things. Or they might be slanted by special interest groups. 
all of which can lead to trouble for each and every one of us in society, right? Again, this is why we need to pray for wisdom for our leaders so that we do not fall into such things. But I guess if God wills it, there's nothing that we can do. And ultimately, we need to cry out to God to even keep us from financial crisis. So, moving on. Now that Egypt is back into the corner, what shall they do? Or what should they do? Again, this is a lesson for Israel, whom Isaiah is writing to again. He wants them to see what's going to happen to Egypt and again how they cannot trust Egypt. And by application, it's a lesson for us as well, right? Can we learn from this? Or will we dig our hills and when things happen to us, that we continue to think that I don't need the Lord. I can get out of this myself. My friends can help me. My intellect can help me. My youth can help me. My own mental strength or physical strength can help me. What do you do when you're backed in a corner? Well, before we get to us, let's look at Egypt. So in verses 16 through 20, there's some figurative illustrations of Egypt's finally coming to realize that they need the Lord. There's five examples here of what they do. Let's look at verses 16 and 17 first. So it says, In that day, so in the day that they're being judged, in the day that these calamities have come upon them, the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving hand of the Lord of hosts, which is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he has proposed against them. So what's going on here? The Egyptians are gripped with fear. They're gripped with fear over the judgments of God, and they finally give up their resistance in fighting back. And that's why they're depicted as women, because it was the men that went out to fight. They're no longer fighting against the Lord. They're depicted as giving up. Instead, they're trembling and they're dreadful of what's going to happen. Again, Egypt has finally been broken and they're finally going to cry out to the Lord, which is depicted in the next few verses. One commentator on this section, talking about judgment from God, he says this, the judgment alerts us to start looking for a way out. Right? Some people don't look for a way out ahead of time. They wait until it's too late. Once they've been judged, once they've been in trouble, they're like, how do I get out of this? And that's what you see right now with Egypt. They're backed into a corner. Every resource of theirs has been brought down low and they've been humbled to the point that they say, what do we do? Where should we go? And look at verse 18. It's the first hint that they begin to move towards the Lord God of Israel. It says, in that day, the five, in that day five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Egypt will begin to look to the God of Israel, right? They are said to be speaking the language of Canaan. Well, who lives in Canaan? Israel, or the land of Canaan. It's a figurative way of saying that they're on the same page, right? If you guys are, if you say, hey, we're speaking the same language, that says we're of the same opinion. We see eye to eye. We're in agreement with something. And in this case, Egypt is finally in agreement with Israel about worshiping the Lord God. So they do the right thing. In their being painted into the corner, they finally cry out to the Lord God of Israel. 
And in verse 19, we see that they seek reconciliation with God. It says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. So Egypt is here depicted as building altars and pillars to the Lord God, expressing allegiance and acceptance of God's covenant. This is what ancient Egypt did in the early books of the, New, of the Old Testament, right? Whenever they were, they, you know, they got across the Jordan River, they got across the, the Red Sea, they would build an altar to the Lord, build pillars to the Lord to remind themselves and remind their future generations of what God had done and their dedication to the Lord. And so that's what Isaiah is depicting here, what's going to happen to Egyptians in verse 18. Excuse me, in verse 19. So let's look at verse 20 now. And again, it's depicted that Egypt will cry out to the Lord. Look at verse 20. It says, in that day, excuse me, it will become a sign, verse 20, it will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord God because of their oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. So Egypt finally cries out because of the oppression and they're crying out for somebody to deliver them. They finally have given up and given away to all their answers and them trying to fix things. And they acknowledge that they need the Lord God of Israel. And both Old and New Testaments attest to God's thoughts and response to the repentant person. Once somebody is at that point and they're crying out to the God, they realize that they can't do it on their own. What does God say? Well, let's first look at Psalm 38, verse 18. It says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And that's what's depicted here in chapter 19 is Egypt is crushed in spirit. They're brokenhearted and they're finally crying out to the Lord. And scripture tells us that the Lord is near and saves such people. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 30, uh, verses 3 through 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's, not, and it's talking about your spiritual state. You're poor in your spirit. You're humbled. You recognize that you need God. That's when you inherit the kingdom of God. And when you mourn over your state of your spiritual state, that's when you're comforted. And that's why Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn, because they recognize that they need the Lord, that they cannot do it on their own. And how does God respond to the Egyptians once they're in this place? Go back to verse 20. I really like this verse. In the second half, it says, For they will cry to the Lord because of oppression. Look what God does. And he will send them a savior, a champion, and he Will deliver them. Again, God responds to those who are poor in spirit, who are mournful, and God sends them a champion, a savior, and he's going to deliver them. And not only that, look at verse 21. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. God is now going to make himself known to the Egyptians. It's a relationship that they have now. It's not just, oh, we know of the Lord. No, they have an intimate knowledge of God. God's going to know them, which is more important, and they're going to know the Lord because he sent them a Savior and a champion, because they're poor in spirit and they have mourned. So God's going to send them a Savior. God's going to make himself known to the Egyptians. And look at verse 22. It doesn't stop there. The Lord, this is the one I read at the very beginning, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but 
healing. So they will return to the Lord, and He will respond to them and will heal them. So once they come to the Lord, once they recognize their spiritual state, their need for Him, He is going to heal them. And first and foremost, He heals them spiritually. They recognize that we need somebody to help us, and God's going to heal them spiritually. That's what He talks about in verses 21, again, about knowing them and they knowing Him. And He may also heal them personally. It's not a guarantee, and I want to make this very clear, just because you're a believer that God is going to heal everything about us. And I'm sure those of us that have, are, you know, broken and sick can admit, yeah, you know what, God, I'm, God hasn't healed me of such and such. God doesn't save us from every disaster. It is on God's terms and not ours when He decides to heal. We just trust Him in the process and through that process. But the principal thing is that God heals us spiritually. In verse 23, God continues to pour himself out. Look at verse 23 now. It says, It says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. If you remember, what I said at the very beginning, Assyria is fighting the Egyptians. And now we get this depiction because the Egyptians have come to know the Lord that there's going to be this peace between Assyria and Egypt. You see, God is going to bring peace into the lives of the Egyptians. And not only that, even into the Assyrians because they have given themselves over to the Lord as well. That's why it says they're worshiping together. Two enemies who hate each other have both given themselves to the Lord, and now they're depicted as worshiping together. Isn't that what happens in our own lives, right? When we give our lives to the Lord, we become more peaceful. We're no longer fighting with enemies, or at least we shouldn't be. God brings peace into the lives of His people. Let's look at verse 24 now as we move along. God Also, I like this verse as well, that God also reminds Israel of their role in this plan. So as God is directing his thoughts here towards Egypt, he wants Israel to know that they're going to play a part in this. Look at verse 24. It says, in that day, that day that this happens, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. And look at this, a blessing in the midst of the earth. So here God reminds Israel of their role. They are to be the conduit in which brings salvation to this Gentile world. Assyria and Egypt are Gentiles. God has brought Israel out of this world to be a light to the Gentiles, hasn't he? And here they're depicted as, hey, this is what you guys should be doing, but you haven't been doing that, but this is your role. This is what you are supposed to be doing They are called a blessing in the midst of the earth. Again, Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And if you think about it, this is fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel. Remember what Simeon said when he was holding the baby Jesus at his dedication in Luke 2, verses 29 through 32. Look at what he says. Luke chapter 2. So Simeon grabs hold of the baby Jesus, and he says this, 
Luke 2, verse 29. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Look at this, verse 32. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. It is through the nation Israel that God brings about the Savior and a light to the Gentiles. And that is fulfilled now in Jesus Christ. This is what Israel was called for, this special purpose, to be a light to the Gentiles that it is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. So God's loving response to the Egyptians, again, is He's going to send them a Savior. He's going to make Himself known to them. He's going to respond with healing. He's going to bring bring back peace in their lives with their enemies. And then the last one, look at verse 25, the last verse here, back at our text. So let me get there. Isaiah 19, look at verse 25. It says, Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, speaking of Egypt and Assyria, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. That's interesting. You remember what Jesus, or excuse me, what Moses told Pharaoh when he was asking Pharaoh to let go of Israel? What did he say? Let my people go, meaning Israel. And now in verse 25, because Egypt has given themselves to the Lord, what are they called by God? Blessed is Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. These are titles both designated for Israel. But now, because they've come into the covenant with God, they are called my people. They are called the work of my hands. God has brought all people into the covenant. And we see that very plainly even in the New Testament, right? So, that is God's oracle against Egypt. Again, it is a warning to Israel. Don't trust Egypt because they're going to be brought down low and they're ultimately going to need to trust in me just like you should trust in me. So what can we learn from this today for ourselves? That this truth for Egypt, as I've been talking about, is also true for you and me today. God uses judgment in our world to humble people. And so we have those people who take judgment and look at it as a negative way And don't cry out to the Lord. And I pray that that is not you this morning. But God wants to use judgment to call you back to Himself. So what is the proper response for those people who are in God's judgment at this very moment? Well, number one, just like the Egyptians, you need to look to God for help. You can't stay stranded in your fear trusting in your own self to get you out of the trouble that you're in. But no, maybe God, and I'm not saying every time you're in something bad as a non-believer that God was using it so that you would cry out to Him. Sometimes it was just our own doing, right? But it could be that God's trying to get your attention and saying, you need me. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on your finances, your job, your family, your friendships, your ability You need to look to God for help. Secondly, you need to repent of your sins just like Egypt did when they set up pillars and they set up altars, agreeing with God that they need to make sacrifices to Him and offerings. They need to repent 
of their sins, just like we do today. When we cry out to God, it's not just, hey, God, please help me. And then he helps you, and then you go on without God until next crisis. No, part of seeing that you need help is recognizing that you've sinned against God. This holy God, as was mentioned, as April mentioned during worship, here is this holy God who demands perfection, and none of us can attain it, and yet he willingly forgives us. He sent his son, the light to the Gentiles, to die on the cross for our sins because we could not help ourselves. We could not be good enough. We could not be righteous enough. You cannot come to church enough to be right with God. And I hope you don't come to church so that you're right with God because that is not what church is about. So you look to God for help. You repent of your sins. And thirdly, you cry out to God for deliverance. Saying, God, send me a savior. Send me a champion. Just like the Egyptians did. And he will answer God will in turn, if you do those things, if you look to God for help, repent of your sins and cry out to God for deliverance, God will do exactly what he did for the Egyptians and the Assyrians. He will turn and be your savior and your champion. The Lord will in turn be your savior and your champion. Not only that, he will make himself known to you. You will have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe He will be your savior. He will be your champion. He will make himself known to you and he will heal you. Again, he will heal you spiritually. And I pray that God would heal us even physically, those of us that need healings. I wish I could say, you know what? God is going to heal you. But scripture doesn't say that if you come to God, he's going to heal you physically. But he can and we trust that he will. And even if he doesn't, you will be healed in the next life for sure. You will get that new body. No more pain, no more suffering, for the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. He will be your Savior. He will make himself known to you, and he will heal you. I know when I see my dad, his finger's going to be like that. Fourthly, he will give you peace in the midst of this crazy world and this crazy struggle that you have in life. He's going to give you peace. Just like the Egyptians and the Syrians worship together, maybe you and your, you know, your arch enemy will one day sit down and worship together because you've both submitted your lives to the Lord. God could do that. We can't let our ethnicities separate us either. You know, the Assyrians and Egyptians were from different countries, but when they gave their lives to the Lord, they worshiped the Lord God. There should be no such thing as racism in the Christian church. We need to give those things up and be at peace with all people. That's what God has called us to do. And just like God called the Egyptians my people and the Assyrians, you know, the work of my hands, he does that with each and every one of us, if you didn't know that. God will call you my people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, as Peter's talking to the New Testament church, look at what he says. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Guess what? God looks at you and he looks at me if you're his child, and he says, you're my people. You're my handiwork. 
this holy God, the creator of all the universe, calls you my people. Like, you're my child. That's mine. You're mine. You're my handiwork. That is just hard to understand, I'm sure, what that means. But believe me, one day when you stand before God, you want him to say, you're my son, you're my daughter. You don't want him to say the opposite where he says, depart from me for I never knew you. Each and every one of us has to make that decision on our own. And lastly, God, as God uses his judgment to humble his people, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm already a believer, so what's my part in this message? Well, it's the same as the nation of Israel. Those of us who are the Lord's are to be the light to the Gentiles. If you've already submitted your life to the Lord and you've given your whole life to follow him, you've repented of your sins, your responsibility in this is now to be a light to the rest of the world just like Israel was. God calls us to himself that we might be the light of the world, a city set on a hill. We are to be a testimony and a testament to God's love for this world. So let's, before we close in prayer, I want to just say this. During, during the worship time, we're going to have you know, people up here that will pray with you. And even after the worship, if you're listening this morning, you're like, you know what, I need to cry out to God, and I don't know what that means, and I need His help, then I would ask that you would come up during the worship time and pray. Let them pray with you over that. And maybe you're also, well, I'm already a believer, but you know what, I want to be a light to the Gentiles. I have some friends that need to know the Lord. Well, let us pray with you for them. Let us pray that God will equip you and give you opportunities to share with them. Whatever your prayer request is, and even if it isn't one of those, I would just say, come forward and let us pray with you during this time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you once again for your word and for your holiness, that even in the midst of your holiness, you've decided to come down and be our Savior and our champion for those who would recognize their need for you and they cry out to you. So I pray this morning, Lord God, if there's anybody in this room who does not yet know you as their Savior, as their champion, no matter how long they've been coming to church, if they know deep down in their heart they've never done that, I pray that they would do that this morning. That they would hear you call them my people, the work of my hands. And Lord, for those of us who are already your children and are blessed because of it, I pray that you would give us the strength and the wisdom and the opportunities to share with those around us that we would be a light to the Gentiles, that we would tell them about your great love and about the champion and savior that you have given to the world. Help us to be strong and motivated to do these things because of all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.